Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinmurn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Welcome back to Coast Talk Talk. Today, I'm joined by Michael Gallucci, startup consultant and advisor. We talk about a variety of topics. We get to talk about sports, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Great to be on. Great to meet you. Awesome. If you want to start, uh, just a quick intro, wherever you want to start. Birth, yesterday, 10 years ago, whatever you want to do, uh, just kind of bring the audience up to speed on uh, on who you are and, and what we might be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up uh, about 15 minutes outside in New York City in northern New Jersey. And um, it's actually where I got my start in e-commerce. Um, in 2006, I uh, responded to a job post off Craigslist because that's where you went to look for jobs back in 2006 um, for a sports marketing internship. And when I went into that sports marketing internship, you know, expecting all these um, you know, jerseys and sports photos on the wall and cool conference rooms and all that stuff, um, it was a tiny shared office um, shared by a couple guys doing a, a startup called sportsmemorability.com. Um, so that's really where I started in the industry. Um, learned from my main partner there um, and would eventually find myself coming down to Miami to actually build out that business from about two people to um, about 70 or 80 at its height, fulfillment center and all the fun stuff actually started happening then um, and pretty much got to know all the different facets of e-commerce um, by doing and uh, then by hiring team and um, you know, got acquired by Fanatics in 2013 and spent six uh, years as a VP of marketing for them and Got a little bit more into content marketing while overseeing the e-commerce uh, of my uh, old site that was that's still existing today. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. Uh, I never really know where to start or how much to tell you. So I think uh, yeah. just jump in with the fun stuff. No, that was awesome. What were you were you were you targeting sports sports memorabilia when you were starting e-commerce, or were you just kind of open to anything and you saw that ad and you piqued your curiosity? Yeah, I just wanted to do something different and learn. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, you know, never really knew exactly what my dad did. He had a bunch of different businesses. It was real estate. It was food services. Um, and growing up over there, a lot of your friends will take internships in New York City, mostly like finance and you know things like that. And it was in between my junior and senior year of college, and I was majoring in hospitality management in college and business minor. And so you know, this is kind of my last time just take a shot at something. I don't know if it necessarily be the last time, but it was a good time to do that. And um, I saw this posting and I said, let me check it out. And I hadn't heard of many businesses at the time um, going into e-commerce like that and taking the approach that they did with not having inventory. Like it was all kind of new to me. Um, but, you know, I was digital native. Um, I was on like MySpace at the time, I think was the big social network um, and just decided to... Uh, to learn. The, when I went in that office, um, there was a Business Week article that had just come out and uh, the guy that was you know, the, the person um, founding the company <clears throat> was in the article. I'm like, this guy must know what he's doing. He had just sold the ad agency in New York City. So I wasn't really looking for anything in particular. Sports was cool, but at that time, we used to you know, joke and say, uh, it would be great if we could eventually sign an athlete to the business or wouldn't it be cool if we eventually work with athletes or do something with the Yankees because we're in New York or the Mets or whatever. Um, and fast forward, you know, 15 years later, um, it's exactly what they do and they do it at a really high level. Nice. So initially when they had no inventory and they weren't doing deals directly with athletes and teams, was it more of a, uh, you know, kind of display stuff from other um, companies and then if someone ordered, they would it would drop ship it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the first account uh, that opened on sportsmemorabilia.com was Steiner Sports. It was kind of the biggest, most professional at the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, Jesse Stein, who was uh, the main partner at the time, went into Steiner Sports and kind of gave the pitch like, hey, we're internet guys. We're, our attention is to rank for these keywords um, and we'd love to carry your product. 
And it was kind of like laughed at at the time. Uh, but the only reason that they gave him an account was because of the domain name, sportsmemorabilia.com. So they gave him a shot. Um, no. And at that time, it might have even been like CSV feeds or XMLs or something like that to get the inventory up there. So we didn't have anything. And you know, one of my first roles was to go into uh, the e-commerce platform, which was uh, Xcart. I don't know if you remember Xcart. Um, and literally copy and paste the SKU, the address, and send emails to Steiner Sports to then send the product out. So that's originally how we we got the products. And then eventually getting into like web scrapes and things like that, we would scrape other websites or eBay. Yeah. So being in a startup back then, was it when you got in and it was just up and to the right, everything's exciting, you know, or were there ups and downs and is this whole model going to work and you know, we're kind of in the middle and, and all that. What was that yeah, like? Yeah, there were ups and downs, but growth was pretty constant. Um, you know, we tried to launch maybe 10 or 12 other businesses in that time with the same type of blueprint, same e-commerce platform. Um, you know, we had to code a lot of the things that e-commerce platforms didn't come with out of the box at the time, tracking numbers and customer service type things. Um, so from the sportsmemorabilia.com perspective, um, I think a lot of the ups and downs were like the, our second year uh, in business. One of our biggest uh, suppliers at the time, Mounted Memories, sent us a letter in like October or November that said um, they were they were going to drop the dropship program, basically, and you had to order wholesale. And that was our game at the time. So I remember thinking like how, you know, I was young at the time, 22, 23, 24. Um, how are we going to get by with this? Um, so we did, we did some tricky things to be able to get by and still sell their inventory. Um, but our organic reach, uh, was incredible and we were just able to keep that. So I think as we got closer to either investment or acquisition, that's when we started to hit like the founder fatigue part of it, where, you know, it's just every day is a grind and or, do we need money? Do we need money to grow? Um, just supporting a bigger team. So I think, as we got into acquisition time, those were started to be the ups and downs, but it was still a great profitable business. I don't know. It's, it's, the founder yeah. fatigue part's weird. Yeah. It's a weird thing, but it's cool now. It's like something people can talk about. You know, before in the at the time, it's just a confusing thing that you can't figure out. Is there something wrong with you? Like, why aren't you, you know, why are, are you not capable? Is it beyond you? I mean, I remember going through all those, or why am I not as interested today as I was yesterday? And what does that mean? And you feel guilty and all these all these random things. So I can totally yeah. relate to that. What were the um so when you tried other websites, it was basically like, we'll take this model, we'll pick a category, find dropship partners. And were they all sports related or was it just kind of like very broad variety? So it all centered around a premium domain name. So we went out and bought uh, boating.com, yachting.com, biking.com, hobbies.com, babyformulas.com, a bunch of different things. And then I would go to um, the kind of like conventions to meet suppliers, kind of talk about our success of sportsmemorabilia.com, what we wanted to do. Not every market was a fit for that type of model. Um, the boating industry, we were, you know, I was going to the boat suppliers and um, none of them really had their products digitalized. And, you know, I was trying to get them, hey, any product that you have come in, can you take a photo of it? And then can you put it in a format like this and then give it to us? So um, it didn't work so much with those, uh, you know, biking, you had to open up um, a storefront. They weren't selling to you unless you had a brick and mortar shop. So I would go and make a little storefront in Coral Gables and we would open up. It just, it wasn't as fitting for the model as sports memorabilia. And we also had hollywoodmemorabilia.com. So hmm. we were selling all types of, you know, celeb type things, movie props, things like that. How does it, I've always, I've always been a collector of sports memorabilia and the Hollywood collectibles, I have friends that do it, but I, I don't. I'm not passionate enough about that space to even know what would be super interesting to me. But what's what's the size of each market? Like how much? I mean, I mean, sports is obviously. I would imagine much, much larger. What? How? How much bigger? Or or am I wrong? You know, there's way more celebs than there are athletes. Ton of movies, and uh, it's yeah. just it's not the kind of culture that sports is to sit down and sign. Um, you know, you do have the comic cons and everything, but. Um, you know, I think with, especially with, um, you know, having the relationships with agents and things like that, it's much easier to, to contract people to sit down inside. 
and sign, whereas uh, Hollywood was a bit tougher. Um, but we didn't take on much inventory there. That wasn't really our play. Sports, we knew really well. It was a fairly predictable, not predictable market, but we knew if you know the New York markets were always going to be big sellers, whether they were uh, you know good teams or not. Um, even if a certain player went to another team, you know, it would still be able to sell. Hollywood was a little bit tougher, so we didn't really take on inventory positions there, um, and just yeah. drop shipped from you know people who had the, the inventory. Was was fraud a big risk? I remember. So my first, I think my first business actually was in college. I was I sold all my baseball cards, you know, to, to fund fun, and then I ran out of cards, and so I started ordering like autographed uh, photos, eight by ten photos, right through the, I guess they were magazines at the time. I was ordering them through, and I'd go to the shows and I'd sell them and. And there's a bunch of tables with the same stuff and someone would come around and yell, those aren't even real. And I'd be like, what do you mean I ordered it here? And then I was watching like a, I don't know if it was a 30 for 30 or some sports center thing. And it was basically like that period of time. So that would have been late nineties or no, early nineties. There was a company that just dominated the autograph market and they're all fake, you know? And I was like, holy shit, I was probably sitting here. Sell, you know, they're like, listen, everyone at the time that was selling autographs photos was buying them all from this place. And 90% of them or something were fake. Um, and I always felt like that's, that's crazy. Um, is it, was it, was it an issue for you at all? Like, especially with using third parties where you couldn't always verify exactly where it came from or, or what it was, or, or by then it, it kind of, they had a bit of better control. Yeah. I, for us, we had to really know who was behind the product and where they were getting it from. And if, they didn't carry any legitimate certifications or certifications that people were comfortable with. We would, we wouldn't sell it. Um, yeah. eBay kind of does the same thing. eBay has like a list of approved uh, authenticators. Um, but even now, I mean, you can go get an autograph and then submit it to, you know, a company like PSA or JSA. Um, they weren't there when it got signed. So they're giving you their opinion that it's real. So it's not. You know exactly a stamp of approval. Yes, this is one hundred percent real. It's in their opinion that it's real. So, yeah. I mean, the nineties were definitely the wild west of that stuff. I think I know the name yeah. of the company you're talking about, but I don't want to get it wrong and say the wrong company. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were there was always you know we had to make sure if somebody was trying to sell us a lot of stuff, where did it come from? What type of certification it was? Um, and then as we got you know more mature in the business, we worked exclusively with people who. We're doing the signings uh, with the athletes and things like that. So um, yeah. we really didn't run into much trouble with it. We, you know, tried to do our due diligence to make sure that everything on the site uh, we could at least trace back to a reputable vendor, right? And then they, yeah. their reputation would be on the line. Anybody that wasn't willing to sign our vendor agreements, we made up vendor agreements and all that type of stuff. If they weren't willing to sign that, we wouldn't work with them. Yeah. So you guys, so the mounted memories said, "Hey, you're gonna have to." You have to buy from us wholesale. No more drop ship. Was that how you transitioned into stock? You know, keeping inventory, and then from there, direct to athletes. Kind of. Um, we uh, now that it doesn't matter anymore. I could let you on a little secret that we did. Um, <laughs> we actually uh, put up their catalog um, of items, and we uh, pretty much geo targeted people we didn't want to see that the that the. Uh, Products were up, but we were legitimately buying it from their from their vendors. So yes. we would just mark it up a little bit. And back then, the power of you know the internet and search marketing and everything, people would find us. They knew we were reputable. You can call a phone and talk to somebody. People were willing to pay that premium for it. Um, so we were kind of we kind of you know bust our way in there a little bit. But then uh, eventually, they would open back up to us and and drop ship from us. Ironically, that was the company that was. Um, bought by Fanatics through the Chief Dreams acquisition. Um, hmm. So we wound up, when we got acquired in 2013, we worked with all those guys. Um, so it, it wound up working out for us. Yeah. And so uh, you touched on a little bit founder fatigue, et cetera. Were you, when you got acquired by Fanatics, were you looking to get acquired? Were you looking to raise around and that led to conversations of something bigger? Like what was the thought process at the time? Kind of all the above. So uh, my main partner was about 10 years older than me at the time. Our CEO and other partner uh, was about you know four or five years older than me, um, and you know I was just eventually looking to start to actually make some money. You know, the, the first year in the startup, I think I barely made thirty grand when I was doing uh, 
an internship with them. I got paid uh, $50 a week plus pizza. No. So, um, you know, at that time, we were just trying to see what's next, who's on our heels. Fanatics would have entered the space and made it really hard for us. Um, we had some term sheet. We actually had a term sheet with Fanatics in 2011. So we were close. We kind of got the taste of what taking some chips off the table would be like. And then uh, we kind of, they kind of went dark over the next two years. They had acquired dreams then. Um, we were potentially looking to raise some more money, uh, bring in some more inventory, um, expand a little bit. Um, but by the time we were you know, thinking about P, things like that, um, Fanatics came back. And they told us their plans to expand the collectibles um, offering from Fanatics. And they had pretty much a wholesale team, um, didn't really have a, a direct consumer retail team. And I had like 20 or 25 sales guys on the phone. Um, and it was just a great lead gen because everybody was finding us online. But yeah, yeah. By, by that time, we knew we would eventually, people eventually would catch up to us. We had a great position. Um, I think our, our main founder at the time, um, wanted to you know move on to different businesses and in the acquisition the two partners that went were myself and um our ceo nice i don't know if i've mentioned this before on the show but we at zappos in i guess it must have been somewhere somewhere around 2001 maybe 2002 we met with uh, michael rubin in philadelphia we were in philadelphia meeting with qvc i think and i don't remember why we met with him he had uh he was doing the fulfillment uh what was it called gsi gsi yeah and so we met with him, and I just remember it was the three of us. And he was like, I want to buy, I want to buy Zappos. And we're like, okay, we're not, you know, we're not trying to sell it. And at that point, Tony was the primary investor. And so the three of us sitting there, and he's like, look, Tony, come on, I know you want out of this business. I'll um look at, and I'm I I might have even been still been the CEO at the time. So it was a little strange conversation, but he was like, I'll just listen, Tony, I'll give you your money back. Whatever you've put in, I'll I'll give you your money back and I'll just take over the business from you guys. And it was just like a weird, like, Tony was like, Well, um, we're not, it's not really what we're looking to do. You know, we're going to do at the time. He's like, we're going to do, we're going to do $8 million this year or something like that. Maybe it was 2000. And um, he's like, what do you think you're going to do next year? And he's like, probably 30 million. He's like, look, I'll buy the company for you right now for the money you've put in. He's like, I just told you we're going to do 30 million next year. And he's like, there's, first of all, there's no way you're going to do 30 million next year. But if you do, I'll buy the company for 30 million. And it was just such a strange conversation. I remember he was like likable in a way, but also, you know, just kind of like, I know everything in a way. And so it was like a, it was a strange conversation, but we just kind of, huh, all right, well, none of this makes any sense, but let's keep in touch. I don't, I don't think we ever touched base again, but that's all I, I always remember him from that. And so later when I would see like the, I mean, selling GSI and carving out fanatics was like just crazy. Like he's a lot of, yeah. Yeah. What he's, what he's been able to pull off has been amazing. What was that like? What was that like going from, from, you know, smaller company and integrated into another company. It was really interesting. And I think we had a different idea of what it would be like in the beginning. Um, at that time, the original founder, so Michael Rubin didn't uh, originally found Fanatics. Uh, the Traeger hmm. brothers didn't out of Jacksonville. Um, they huh. were selling jerseys out of a, um, a store in a mall and then eventually realized, okay, everybody all over the country wants jerseys and we'll get the licensing rights and start selling them. So I remember Alan Traeger come down to South Florida to our office. And, you know, I was like 27 or 28 at the time. It was really surreal and sit in front of me, like, okay, Mr. Co-founder, you know, what's, what's your role here? I never <laughs> really had to like answer that before. I had never been in, you know, been through investment or acquisition or anything like that. Um, but knowing what he created was, pretty cool to just even be at the table at that time. And um, yeah. my two other business partners were really handling a lot of the, um, you know, in the weeds acquisition stuff while I was running the operations of the business and, uh, you know, running the team. Um, and it was a really quick transition. I believe we started talking in May or June and we closed like August 16th of that year. Oh. And um Ironically, they were just right up the block from us. So at the time we were acquired, my office was in Coral Gables and they were up in, um, in Plantation at the time. Now they're in Miramar, which is you know about 40 minutes from here. Um, so the transition up there wasn't so bad in terms of logistics and people and moving our stuff. Um, but there was a whole different management team at the time. And we had went up to Jacksonville and kind of got to peek under the hood of what was then like a $700 million business and just understand how they were working everything. 
Um, but really when the new management team that was, um, they brought in, uh, Doug Mack, CEO, Chris Horton came over from Orbitz. Um, <clears throat> they brought Jackie Chu in from, uh, eBay. And that was really cool because they were, you know, operating these huge businesses, um, and were able to, you know, give me an understanding of how the business needs to grow from there. So, um, we were on different platforms, so we operated kind of separately. Um, but just being able to, you know, rub elbows with those people and, and learn what they were doing to acquire traffic uh, as a billion-dollar company, it was just super interesting. So it, it, it was fun. It was a great experience. Did you find yourself, uh, hey, I'm, I'm a, I like this. I'm, I'm, I like being in a, in a larger company. Or were you more like, I like learning, but I, I really want to, I like the startup you know, environment better? What were you, were you kind of split? Split. I think there's pros and cons, especially with a company like Fanatics, you get a lot of access to really cool events and things. And at that time I started to take a look at how they were working with athletes and really start to push the, the content um, initiative and making sure that we were getting everything filmed. We're always with all these amazing legendary athletes, but we were never capturing any of it. Right. And there's always questions. How do you know it's real? And there was just a, a great moment in time that you could spend candidly with a, with an athlete, but things like that made it fun. Um, like I said before, working with uh, some of these really experienced high level business people were great. I mean, we knew what it was like to take a business from, from, you know, zero to a hundred. And these people were experts in taking the business from a hundred to, uh, you know, infinity. Um, yeah. so I, being in corporate life was definitely a bit different. The meetings and all that type of stuff is, was very different. Um, but I think in fanatics, it was fun. You're constantly surrounded by sports. You know, I grew up a, a sports fan, but I think you know, it's funny after I left there, I stopped watching sports as much. Hmm. I think it was like an overload, but it, it was, it was a good experience. Would I, would I work at another large company? Conditions would have to be really right. You know, I, I work with startups now and just trying to figure out how to get them off the ground, how to find product market fit. It's exciting. You get kicked in the face a lot. Um, but being able to kind of instill that startup mentality into other people has just been really fulfilling. Like, yeah. here, here's what I did. Don't make my mistakes. Um, that's been fun. Yeah. What is, what is your, uh, your quick summary of how do, how do you get product market fit? Or, what's the, or how do you recommend doing it? Yeah. So there's a couple interesting ways um, you could initially test. And one of the things that we do right now is <clears throat> you're familiar with a painted door test. Mm, no, or maybe better not the name. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, we call it shadow brand painted door test. Um, you know, you could stand up a website and you could spend money to, to send traffic to it. And see and if just anyone ultimately, clicks through yeah, it. Yeah. See if anybody clicks through it, you know, yeah. don't, don't make the, the checkout, grab anybody's credit card or anything like that, but take them all the way through. And at least you have a sense of, is your idea viable in its infancy, right? If there's yeah. nobody coming to the site, nobody converting, um, don't spend your money. Like I, I would, I would joke with people. I could help you lose, you know, 15, 20 grand rather than like half a million dollars because you're going to sink it all on in inventory and you, yeah. you don't know if it's going to work or not, you know, cause you think you have a hunch. So the door looks nice from the outside. When you open up the door, there's nothing in there. Paint the door test. Um, and if any of those with a, with, with their real brand or just pick a, make a fake brand in the same category and do it? Suggest making a fake brand, same category. The, we've yeah. launched three in the past year. Um, two of them got greenlit and they were all different brands. Um, e even when you bring your first brand to market, like I think that's what a lot of people get held up on is like the logo and the colors and all this stuff. And um, There's so much more to, I think, developing an e-commerce business that you could, you could change. Like how many, iterations of logos have you done in your businesses they, they way too many and i probably should have painted a lot of doors instead of doing the <laughs> i kind of i kind of veer towards the inventory fun first and then the oh shit how are we going to sell this and wait no one wants this we just spent all this time making it plans so i need to yeah but i do think it's 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 interesting because like it's hard you know especially on things that can't be proven right so i would i, I was thinking when you when you were saying that i was thinking okay well if it was me where I would go wrong is I would look at the data on a fake brand and go, what's the brand? You know, there's some people who are like my differentiator is going to be brand and it would have had a different. So it was a, but that's, that's a, I understand the, 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 that thinking is wrong. It's just one of those things where, you know, as entrepreneurs, we're always trying to create 
it's such a str- tough balance because you're always trying to, you know, you're built with optimism and it's just hard to not immediately see an obstacle and not properly identify it. Just be like, well, we're ignore that one because of some thing that's hard. I think that's what steers a lot of entrepreneurs like myself the wrong way is because you, you're kind of like following a path that, and you, you might cling consciously or subconsciously to these things that can't really be gauged like brand and what difference that might have. And just imagining that that's the problem when a lot of times it's not like you just built something that no one wants or, you know, so it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I think it depends on your product, right? If you're making a clothing brand or something cool, like a lifestyle brand, your brand plays into it. It's something you're wearing and all that. But if it's a a product that's supposed to give somebody some sort of a benefit, I think you really have to make sure that you're giving value back. It's, it's such a crowded e-commerce is super crowded. now. Everybody's trying to do more or less the same thing, uh, but a little bit better than the other person. And if I think if you're relying on your cool, catchy brand and not the actual benefit that it's giving to the user. You, know, you have to you have to be honest with yourself at some point. What is my product benefiting the user, and is it worth the value that I'm putting it out at? Yeah, yeah, for sure. What um, what's the biggest thing you can't get through to young entrepreneurs entrepreneurs about? No matter how much you show them or tell them your own experience or give them examples, what's the one thing that they just you know refuse to blame? You know, I've a friend that's always like, he hears every no, but he, he almost hears the no's, not the no's from like, well, some, partially no's from a customer, but also questions or I don't get it from someone as like almost a badge of honor because you look at the biggest, most famous ideas and they have to have a certain amount of doubters. So it's almost like, awesome. Nobody gets it. That means I'm on the right path. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> what, yeah. are, what are some things like that that you run into? Well, the nobody gets it part. It's it's always nice to find partners that do get it and that are excited. I think yeah. that was one of the big things about the success of sportsmemorabilia.com was that my partners were all in on it. They had, you know, huge beliefs in where it was going to go. We spent every lunch talking about the direction. You know, we spent a lot of time together brainstorming and figuring out. Um, how to overcome all these obstacles. Even if people, you know, people in the beginning told us sportsmemorabilia.com would be nothing. Even the biggest suppliers in the category, they're like, these these guys don't have a memorabilia background. They're not going to make it. Yeah. But we knew how to market on the internet and we figured it out. Um, when it comes to younger entrepreneurs, I mean, man, it's, it's such a time to be an entrepreneur because it's the cool thing to do now, right? Everybody yeah. wants to be a founder or CEO or something. I actually didn't find out I was a co-founder until we were going into acquisition and I kind of earned the title. My the oldest business partner, he said, you were here from the beginning. You, you know, poured everything into this. Like I wanted, a, you know, you've yeah. earned a co-founder title. And I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but I was, you know, it was just something I was really into spending a lot of time trying to figure out problems. And I think that's most of your, most of what you do is figuring out problems as, as an entrepreneur. And then you, you start to do things that um, might be different than the, the thoughts you had envisioned in your head. Like you become HR, you become the janitor, you become everything. Um, yeah. And just trying to get, you know, the business going to the next, to the next part. So um, it's, Something that I would tell young entrepreneurs, just make sure it's it's something that you're really into because you spend a lot of time. Um, yeah. I think we kind of, uh, some of the brands that I work with, I don't know if they um, understand how much time it takes to take something off the ground. Yeah, both time and a day and how long sequentially it's going to take until it's yeah. until it's something. What um, So now in the era of social, you know, and, and you have a everything's so much easier if you've haven't, you know, a genuine audience and you've taken that time. How do you, how do you evaluate that with, you know, you've got someone who's built a following, which clearly shows most of the time, like a lot of dedication, a lot of consistency, a lot of, you know, tapping into what people are interested in and maybe not as good of an idea or as much business experience versus someone who's got a great idea seems to really understand the business, but has really, you know, slim to no following, which means they don't necessarily understand the modern business. Like, how do you, you know, do you, do you tell someone, hey, 
you know, get into partner with someone, go get a following or tell someone, hey, you've got a following. But like, I mean, how do you how do you reconcile that? What should people I guess another question is, what you know, a young entrepreneur with an idea, should they spend some time building up their audience because that's going to be so much better to leverage or should they dive straight into the business at, you know, at the expense of all the time it takes to build up that audience? I mean, that's a great question. I think people who started building their audiences organically and kind of now have the opportunity to sell or give an offer. Um, yeah. Partner up with somebody who's really good with e-com or really knows how to map out um, a roadmap of offers and, and funnels and things like that to, to get people um, into your product. Um, as far as building up, I, that, that, that's a tough one. Um, again, it's definitely an area where you have to be really passionate about and you could wake up every day and, and put out some content. Like I, this is, this is your first podcast. Me? Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't. I've done, um, I did one before with Daniel Cormier and one that was kind of following as our business evolved, yeah. but this is the did, first more like interview kind of format. Were you, were you surprised at how much work it took? Like what, how was that for you when you got into it? Cause it's a lot of consistency yeah. and then chopping them up in the past. The ones that, the ones that I did, they fell off just because it was a lot of work and you're trying to do a bunch of different things, you know? And I think I always underestimated building a social following. I remember Tony and Zappos would talk to me way back when you got to get on Twitter. You got to get on Twitter. I mean, this is, this is like the, when Twitter was first starting, you know, he's like, it's going to be so valuable. And I just didn't get it. And so I think building that following is a little bit like the business where people without a following look at people with a following and think they just somehow got it. And they are underestimating how much consistency and work that was. And then people, you know, often look at entrepreneurs and underestimate how much time and energy they're putting in and how long it took to get to where they were. So I feel like they're, they're a little similar. And it's just exciting right now that if the, if someone can do both, it's such a, you know, I mean, the, the tools that are available, even, you know, talking about the e-commerce software and stuff that we had to deal with or stuff you had to, you know, take the time to make. Now the tools they have is like, just seems like such an amazing time to be a, a young entrepreneur. Yeah, the speed to market's really quick. And, you know, it's very similar to how we looked at SEO back in the day. It's like, yeah. you have to do a little bit over time and then it's eventually going to pay off for you. It's kind of the same with content now. I think if you think of that, in kind of a SEO organic type of way, keep putting yeah. your content out. But at the same time, same with SEO. If you just throw content onto a website, it's not going to do much. You have to structure it the right way. You have to get links the right way, all that stuff. I think yeah. as people start to understand really the levers they can pull with content um, and then their social following, that's when things get really interesting. And yeah, leveraging all these different tools that you could use, not only from content and e-commerce, um, you know, you could, yeah. all these plugins that you could use are just amazing now. So what do you, th what's the, not to always tie it back to memorabilia. What do you think yeah. is the, the future opportunity in memorabilia that's like underserved, right? I mean, I've collected cards. I've got collected, I got really big into like game worn jerseys and, and different things. What's the thing that, and everyone's trying to, you know, digitize everything. Is there an area that you think is like really exciting? It's we're all going to look at and go, oh, yeah, why didn't we collect more of that? Or I think so, but it's, it's an idea that I actually want to build out with somebody. I think there's one particular area that's combining the physical with the digital yeah. um, in a certain way. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll chop it up with you <laughs> off the air, but yeah. you know, I've, oh, people are always reaching out to me about Web three stuff and NFT stuff. I never really got that excited over yeah. what I heard so far. And I was at a um, a venture conference in Miami a couple months back, and I had um, given a roundtable uh, talk about content and commerce. And I had somebody come up to me after that who was a <clears throat> he was a Web three developer. And he's like, you know, did you ever think about doing this? And I'm like, I haven't. Actually, it's the best idea I've ever heard of the memorabilia and NFT space. I know I'm being a tease right now and talking about yeah. it, but um, you know, if if digital could tie in experiences and things like that, it'd be great. Um, you know, you yeah. see people doing it with restaurants and the whole like Soho House model, where you you have some sort of a membership to something and it gets you access and things like that. Um, I see Tom Brady doing it with autograph. He started. Um, it was a release recently where you get like tickets to a game and you get to go have dinner with them or something like that. 
as digital moves it there, and I'm sure the fanatics guys at you know Candy Digital are going down that path. Yeah. Um, but nothing can replace in-person experiences. I think those are really cool. You know, we did them in in shows, but not every athlete wants to sit around and shake 500 hands. You know, especially if you're playing. Yeah. Um, if you're retired and you you rely on some of that income, you know, you'll, you'll go to some of those shows. So I think where Fanatics was bringing these kind of smaller, intimate events that would be, um, you know, subsidized by a sponsor or something like that, it was really cool. You know, how often do you get to sit there and listen to Peyton Manning, you know, do chalk talk and talk about his games and things like that? So um, I know another company doing something called uh, Proof of Presence, which I think could be really cool. So, you know, if you go somewhere, it activates your digital collectible that you were there. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, going to games or some of these smaller type things. Um, but, you know, nothing like being able to display it to like, yeah, you could display a digital frame, but actually anything that I hang in my place or have, there's a story behind it. Um, I was an idiot and didn't really collect that much. I was too focused on business business. And trying yeah. to sell it. And, you know, everything I had was personalized to me from, from a signing and everybody like, Oh, you're ruining the value. I'm like, you don't think I could find a guy named Mike that wants all of these athletes to Mike, like I think yeah. I can resell it in the future. Um, but now I always like the stories behind things, the connections, the athletes having conversations with them, that type of stuff. Yeah. So on the web three NFTs, what do you, do you think, I mean, I think we had, right. Everything was based on speculation. Everything was going up. Everyone was thinking this is going to take over everything. And then it went back down and the euphoria kind of died down a little bit. And then there's people that are like, nope, I've seen it. I can't unsee it. And whether it's quietly or in a bear market, I'm going to build because this is going to play a key role. Do you think it's going to be something that, you know, one day there's this, this dramatic shift and like Web3 or NFT, it's like becomes really prominent? Or do you think it's just going to be something that's like, you know, integrated in ways that are it's not going to replace everything. It's just going to be this thing that some collectors latch onto while other collect collectors, you know, stick with, with what they're used to. Do you think it'll just be a little bit or will it be a lot in the future? Like dramatic? Oh, I'm, I'm not too sure. I'm actually on some YouTube video somewhere, giving a keynote in Spain in like 2015 saying, I wasn't sure if we were going to take Bitcoin payments. So <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't make any uh, predictions right now. Cause that was a really terrible one. Oh. Um, we would have been killing it there. I think it'll be a, a little bit of everything. I mean, I'm not somebody who would probably collect dig- digital type stuff, but you do have people who like to be in front of their phone or computer and open up something and watch some animation happen. And oh, you got this player or this special edition. So I'm sure there's there's room for it. And also depends on the education of the younger uh, the younger audience. Like they have to be like the brought into the hobby, right? And are they brought yeah. in, being brought in by sitting around and opening up baseball cards, which is, you know, fun. Uh, or is it, um, it's super accessible on an iPhone and, you know, the parent is letting their kid open up digital collectibles and that's what they remember growing up. Like, I still think we're in this kind of transition phase where, um, you know, my generation still opened up baseball cards when we were younger. We didn't, we didn't have any digital type stuff like that. So maybe it could be in the future. I think as they start to, um, bring in the, the utility of the NFTs of, you know, access to something or, um, you know, maybe with fanatics, if there's, for example, if they do a limited edition of 50, um, this NFT allows you to get access to that physical limited edition of 50. So I'm yeah. sure there'll be some sort of mix and match, but I don't, I don't think it would ever completely take over the physical. It's just physical is too much fun to, to do and yeah. collect. That's funny. I was, I reminded me, I was a couple of years ago, I was sitting with my son, I guess during the pandemic when I got back into cards and I was like, come on, let's open some cards. And he thought it was fun for like a second, but he had no context of what we were opening. He didn't care about, uh, I think we were opening soccer cards. He didn't care about soccer or basketball, whatever we were opening. So he was more opening it and then looking at me to see if there was anything in the pack that like I seemed excited about. Right. So then I got Fortnite yeah. cards and I'm like, well, he loves Fortnite. So he starts opening Fortnite cards and he seemed excited. And I said, oh, yeah, this is, he's going to start collecting Fortnite cards. And that's just going to replace. Like, I love collecting cards when I was a kid. But we got like halfway through a box. And he's like, uh, hey, is it all right if I go do something else? You know, and it was like, oh, OK. It's just not not something that he was um, he was used to. Is the is the memorabilia, is there, are there concerns that it's it's an aging industry? Like, have they found the thing yet that captivates the younger audience? 
I think they've always said it's an aging industry and look what happened over the past year or two. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I'd been talking to some folks in eBay and what happened to their trading cards uh, category over the past, you know, it was mostly the pandemic. It was insane. Yeah. I know it's starting to reel back a little bit now, but um, you know, I think social media has a lot to do with it. You know, you couldn't re- really do these box breaks or open up cards and um, then start to freak out when you get something great. Now it's just easy to put that up on YouTube or easy to have a TikTok that does that. So yeah. there's definitely more um, exposure to it, obviously, than there was back in the day. You, you couldn't make that excitement um, unless you had a crowd of people <laughs> around you watching. So um, yeah. I, I think it'll it'll stick around. Yeah. I'm kind of going all over the place. So fanatics, yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I, even though I'm a older, I'm like still childlike, I guess, in that I'm always just ordering like, uh, you know, merchandise from the teams I like. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's interesting as fanatics gets bigger and bigger and now has bought what tops and taken out, got the card license. I was, I noticed, and I was surprised with, I don't know, this was again a couple of years ago when I start ordering, I'd order some, some stuff and it would come, you know, I had a direct-to-garment company that I started like in 2007, right? And I remember getting frustrated with the registration and the the underbase and all that, or whatever it's called. Like, it just didn't look right. And when you washed it, it wasn't right, right? And then Fanatics, I would order stuff and I would get a similar product in like 2020. I remember thinking, first thought was, wow, the um, the technology is still pretty, you know, not that dependable, but also, shoot. As they, I remember I had a league license for um, for some merch, and as I talked to them, it was kind of like, "Hey, look, they they would the leagues would even say, hey, look, eventually it's just easier for us to have one partner in as many categories as possible.'" And it was very clear, look, Fanatics is going to be the single partner for most leagues on most things. They're going to try to take over sports cards, and then but then the challenge there is always, well, if there's only one source then they don't have to worry so much about product or quality and innovation because no one else can get there. They can do little things for innovation for experiment or press or whatever, but the bulk things, the, the quality could go down. And if no one else can compete because, you know, a single license, it gets tricky. Do you think, um, I guess there's two questions. One, but do you think having a single company that kind of takes over the memorabilia and merchandise section is, you know, is going to it's going to hurt the industry and also what would you your advice be to someone who you know had a startup idea within a space that fanatics dominates at the moment like what, what would you see as the opportunity cuz cuz it's tricky they need to not only get customer attention but they're also eventually going to need to get league attention or player attention and how would you uh so those two questions I'd be interested to hear yeah, was the question first one? Do I think first it's one was like one, company? If there's just one big company that dominates everything. Does it hurt the overall quality because they have no fear of competition and they're trying to I do mean, everything? I mean, selfishly, I want to say yes, uh, in in hopes for a nice big uh, IPO from Fanatics. <laughs> but um, um, you know, I think if you look at it from the second question point of view, what else can people create that might be interesting to a company like Fanatics that they're just too big to get off the ground right now. I mean, what entrepreneurs yeah. have in their advantage is speed and creativity. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a, there's a company that makes these like button up shirts, um, called Roosevelt's. And I was talking to their founder maybe like a year or two ago and he got into that market and didn't have the licenses. And, you know, this is obviously a risky bet, but he was selling so well um, he got a cease and desist and he went into uh, whichever studios were giving him the cease and desist. He's like, listen, I I truly didn't know that I can get in trouble for this or do whatever, but here are my sales and I want to keep doing this. And they're like, okay, you're, you're a new partner. Here are the, <laughs> here's your licensing. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's that's the risky uh, route to take. But um, you know, I, with with memorabilia, something that I've been interested in is thinking of it from like an art perspective, what can you put together uh, artistically or creatively that um, one of their vendors might not be doing already and then potentially going to them and say, Hey, I have a unique way of presenting this or doing this, et cetera. um, And see if they would want to, would want to sell, but it'd be, it's just, it's really tough to compete with them because they get, you know, direct access to athletes and everything, especially the bigger ones. They have pockets to do it. Um, 
But to, to get into that space, I mean, I would only know from the memorabilia and collectible space, from the apparel space, got to be really hard, right? Unless yeah. you are creating some sort of cool uh, brand. But now you have celebrities and athletes starting to do that now. Like I see yeah. uh, uh, Darius Rucker has a, a special edition with um, Fanatics. I think Alyssa Milano has another one or um, uh, the, the reporter, I forget her name, but yeah. um, Aaron Andrews. Um, so, you know, now you're competing with, with those people coming up with products. Um, yeah. Sports is a tough one. As it goes on, it's it's tough to break into. Yeah, it's definitely one. There's so much passion and people see it as such a big market, but it's tough to go into any industry where there's only one potential acquirer, right? And also, there's generally, if there's an industry with one potential acquirer, it means there's also Goliath in your industry. So it's, yeah. you know, it might be exciting to be David, but it's tough. We, we knew there was two potential acquirers. It was either going to be Mountain Memory Streams or it was going to be Fanatics. Once Mountain Memory Streams was purchased by Fanatics, we knew that was the the last stop unless there wanted to be some other, you know, investment, but you still would have been fighting Goliath. So, yeah. Oh, well, I guess tell me a little bit about your, your advising and, and the consulting. Like how do you, how, how do you find people or how do they find you? And yeah. kind of what's that evaluation process in the, in the beginning of if they make a good client? Yeah. So I think while I was still with fanatics or even before that, before acquisition, um, I was pretty active on Instagram, always kind of sharing what I was up to, a lot of behind the scenes of the business. I wish I would have done that times 100 mm-hmm. um, because we had a really cool operation, um, really great people working with us. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. And people would always comment and say how you know interesting it was to see behind the scenes of these operations. Um, through that, I was able to meet a lot of different people and they knew I had a, a startup that got acquired and, you know, everybody always wanted to create a business, start a business, whatever. And I was often the phone call that they, they reached out to and said, I got this idea. And there's just, you know, everybody's got a ton of ideas and maybe a small fraction of that uh, they can execute on and whatnot. So um, after Fanatics, I took a little bit of time off and I started thinking about what I wanted to do next and also what made um, businesses successful, what made us successful, also, what did I see in the larger companies that maybe could be leveraged by smaller companies to get themselves ready to operate like that? Um, everything from you know management style, frameworks, um, strategies to grow, e-commerce strategies, all that type of stuff. And then I had a few people reach out that um, wanted me to consult for them, just you know have basic phone calls and make sure they're they're going the right direction. Almost think of it as like you know founder insurance, like, Hey, we're thinking about this. Do you see any holes in our plan? How can we potentially do this? Um, and as I was starting to get back out there, COVID happens, that kind of threw a shake up into things. Um, and during that time, I, um, I was looking for someone to do my media buying. Um, a lot of the times I was talking to founders, I was pitching this whole, you know, test it before you, uh, actually build the whole thing, but you need paid media to do that. It's just the quickest way to get traffic and test your idea. Um, and through a friend who's a CMO at a apparel company, um, they recommended I talk to this media buyer that they had, and they were at a company called South Venture Labs at the time. So um, I talked to the owners there. And as I was kind of interviewing them to be my paid media buyers on like a white label basis, like halfway through the conversation, they stopped and they're just like, you know, we're thinking about building out a division that actually does what you are talking about. Would you want to come on and run the division for us? And you know, it's going into like fall of the pandemic, and they're a completely remote company. And um, I had to—I was been in Miami for the last thirteen or fourteen years, and I went up to spend uh, some time uh, with family in New Jersey. He was getting into the winter time. I'm like, you know what? I want to go back to Miami, join this uh, company, be remote, try to build up a kind of a startup incubator accelerator division from the beginning. Um, and they had already initial conversations with a really big um, private corporation out of Boston. So like a $3 billion company that were B2B and they wanted to get into D2C. So that quickly became my main focus. I didn't really have time to take on any other clients, the people that I was working with in the past. And before that, phased them out a little bit. Um, but this opportunity was really cool because it was almost like a small venture funded company. They were using their own funds. They're a very healthy company. Um, 
And I got to take their assets that they had B2B and start to test how they would work in the D2C market. Um, so that's mostly what I've been working on over the past year or two. Um, but if the right, you know, consulting advising opportunity comes by, I'll take that. Um, the company that I hired when I was with Fanatics to do all of our content, um, I really wanted to build a content studio within Fanatics. I think mm-hmm. it was a little bit premature and before it's time, maybe yeah. paddling a little too, uh, too, too much in front of the wave there. Um, and these guys were great. You know, I was, I was being directed to use all these other content studios that had, you know, a lot of, um, uh, experience behind them. But, uh, this particular guy was a former major league baseball player and, um, he had a content studio and we just clicked really well. And all of the, the initial original content, um, and signing videos and things that I did for fanatics, I used him. Um, and as we were talking, as I was leaving fanatics, like, Hey, would, would you want to jump on and be an advisor with me and, uh, for my company? And it said, yeah, it sounds great. Like I, I really believe in what you guys are doing. It's, it's not necessarily e-commerce, but I feel like there's this connection of content and commerce. So if you're talking to somebody about, you know, whether it's developing some sort of a content strategy, I'd love to be on the other side saying, how could you turn that into commerce or vice versa? If you're talking to somebody with a commerce business, how could you then, uh, bring in content to kind of amplify the the commerce portion of it. So long-winded way of what I'm doing now, what I got into. Nice. No, that's awesome. I think it's definitely, um, yeah, I mean, that sounds like the best of both worlds because you, because you get to, you, you know, you get to build and test with something established and still keep the door open to, to new ideas at the same time. It's, yeah. Some, it's some bigger companies have reached out over the past year and, um, you know, they sound interesting. I, don't quite know if they're looking for just advice <laughs> at the time <laughs> on the market yeah. um, or or what they're trying to do. I mean, if, if the right opportunity came along, I, you know, I always listen to everything. I would kick myself for the amount of times that I did not listen to opportunities. Um, and yeah. when I was right after we got acquired with Fanatics, the chief people officer of Chewy reached out to me for a, nice. a digital position there. And it was before I think they had the largest e-commerce IPO in history. Yeah. And I didn't, really, I didn't even take the call. I was like, oh, I'm in this great position at Fanatics and we got yeah. all these things promised to us. And so even people on my team always take the call, just take the call. Yeah, there's, not, there's no downside to knowing more, right? If, you were, if it was yeah. going to be something that, even if you were going to lose someone on your team, you're either going to lose them with a great opportunity, which will you know, on positive note, which will help you or you were yeah. going to lose them anyway. And this will just expedite that process or they'll learn, realize they'll be more committed because they'll realize, oh, I went and looked and the grass wasn't greener over there and I'm I'm excited. So I think that's, it's, it's amazing. Like all the, you know, it's just an exciting time for more and more transparency. Even when you're talking about you should have done more social back at Fanatics. I mean, obviously that was a little later, but you know, what's crazy to think now is there was a point where companies were like, hey, this is, they were afraid of they were afla- afraid of the employees doing anything on social in the office. They and Absolutely. the idea of like, what should we do? This this employee wants to be on social, but it was almost like this little weird, like it's the unknown. What if they make us look bad? What if they get the power? It was like, and so it's like it's crazy to not crazy, but it's it's just it's great how things have evolved and how they'll continue to evolve. And um, you don't realize until you start talking about it, like, man, yeah, a lot of things that seem so standard now were like. No, and you always think of the big things, right? Like, you know, the internet. But like, there's so many little things along the way that become the norm that are a little struggle through. And then it's interesting to see decisions. Everyone made decisions with the best intentions and with the best data they had at the time. And sometimes the one that is more open to taking a risk inside a big company even, you know, propels the company. But sometimes the one that takes the risk got sidetracked from the mission. So it's a, it's the fun part about, about business, I guess, is there's no... Um, there's no right or wrong way. It's just, and there's, it's, it's so fast moving, even in the slowest of industries. Yeah. So. I, I definitely felt that. And, you know, even myself not being sure what I could put out there and, you know, having to worry about what the company might think of that. And, you know, I remember in the, the memorabilia side, I always wanted to show what goes on behind the scenes and like uh, all that stuff. And, um, you know, they had the best intentions at the time, but I remember I, I, not like get in trouble, but they would say, you know, don't show all of the memorabilia in the room. And I'm like, even if there's 800 helmets in this room being signed, that's only 800 people in the world that get these yeah. things. You know, they wanted to keep everything very limited, but now it's different. Now it's show everything. And now you even see the athletes walk into a signing room and for their own social media. 
and they want to show what's going on. So I really yeah. wanted to open things up back then. But like you said, it was the unknown of, you know, is this person going to put the wrong thing up? Or are they going to say the wrong thing up? But, you know, I think ultimately you got to have that trust in your team to say, you know, I know you're going to put your best intentions out there. And if something's messed up, you'll either, you know, fix it or pay, pay the consequence of it. Yeah. I think that everyone's just now more at peace with it is what it is. You know, like in the past, it was like, always look at social media and go, oh, thank God we didn't have it when we were teenagers or early 20s, yep. you know, for me at least. And then it's like, mm-hmm. so you probably always have that in the back of your head of like, on some level, you're like, oh, imagine if everyone would have seen everything we did. And so it's hard then to, you know, but to the new generation, it was just always like, what do you mean? Everyone can see, everyone can see everything I do, you know, like that's just how it's always been. And and then they just adjust their their life around that is, is pretty fun. But even, yeah, even when you see like, People love on Instagram, right? When you get the older, like um, the one of one sports cards, right? And they and someone will find a picture of like uh, you know Kobe or or someone else like signing it originally, or or you know any. There's so much less content back then of like older guys with the card, you know, and it's just like it just adds so much value to the to the to the thing now. And 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 it's true. It's part of the. Um, yeah, I can imagine an athlete walking into a room of 800 helmets. In the past, they would have been like, shit, I got to sign 800 helmets. And now it's like, oh, I'm going to get a bunch of great stuff for my Instagram today. You know, while I sign these, it's like a different, a different, uh, different mindset. So it's pretty Yeah. Sweet. And I think they also can appreciate building their like affinity for their fandom, right? Like the, the, the fans being more connected to them. Like if I'm, if I'm an athlete, I want that so much because I want to, build up the most amount of fan base I can during my playing career. So that after, if I want to go become an entrepreneur, if I want to go start a clothing line, like those are really valuable people to be your early supporters. So now that they talk about entrepreneurship more with athletes and all that, I think people are more understanding. Their athletes are more understanding of how important it is to them. We used to have to fight for that back then. Like, Oh, can we get a social post or this and that? What was interesting when I started doing content with the athletes, um, I used to show their agents, hey, this piece that we put out on your client's uh, social was the best performing out of anything we put out there. Like yeah. maybe he was sitting at a table and uh, like back in the day, I had Gronk in the office and after every ball he signed, he spiked it. And like, he's like, oh, I'm going to break something. I'm like, dude, break whatever you'd like. Like, this would be great content. And yeah. at the time, you know, he just was present on Facebook um, but I would screenshot the amount of likes, the amount of comments. And I'm like, this is what your fans are loving. And, you know, now there's many more opportunities to do that. But back 2015, 2016, those were, were great moments for them. I think they still can be. Yeah. Um, well, it's the model. The model there. Back yeah. in the day, before they had their own social, which then people realized, wow, social following is, you know, turns me into a business, connects me directly to my fans now and in the future before it was like i gotta go sign these things for you there's nothing in it for me other after i get my my check and if you take pictures of me and stuff i can't use that anywhere so this just feels like extra work right now it's like the beauty of this new balanced model is like the perfect scenario is like three people come into a room to do something that benefits all of them and then each of them then take that meeting and use it to generate more value for themselves and it's just like everything is Everything is content now. Everything is interesting, right? And so it's, uh, yeah, no, it's really exciting. So awesome. Well, that, we really enjoyed that conversation. I could ask, you know, I just love the, the sports space, love the memorabilia space, love the entrepreneurial space, love the startup space. So this was a, <laughs> this was a lot of fun and um, definitely got me thinking about things in a, in a, in a, in an exciting way. Definitely don't want to, I got to, turn my brain off after this. So I don't try to <laughs> sit here and think of some, some wacky thing to start, but the, um, where can people follow you, um, or get more information if they want to, you know, reach out or hear more. Yeah. I'm active on Instagram. It's just my last name at Gallucci. Um, also have a website, michaelgallucci.com. You can see a lot of the work that I did from sportsmemorabilia.com over to fanatics and try to populate that with a lot of, uh, content, pictures, videos, and things like that. Um, and yeah, it was great talking. If you have any of those crazy ideas in sports that uh, you want to jam on, just reach out. I, I love that stuff. So it's it's great talking to you again. Big big fan of uh, your work with Zappos back in the day. Like I was telling you before we jumped on, uh, a lot of sportsmemorabilia.com's inspiration uh, came from that. So uh, it was really a pleasure talking to you. Awesome, appreciate that. And I definitely will be uh, 
<laughs> we'll be hitting you up for some brainstorming. Well, yeah. anyone listening, if you get a chance, rate, review, subscribe, share this episode. There's a lot of good, a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of good knowledge to be passed around. And uh, we'll see you next time on Coast Talk Talk.